Hello everybody, this is Kerry Tennis, and today is Thursday, March 11th, 2021. This is an advice column. Gee, it starts actually with a letter to you, the reader. Dear reader, I'm doing it again, I'm going long. And let me say that in the past, in my blessed 12 years writing the advice column five days a week for Salon.com, the most commonly remarked upon flaw in my work was my tendency to overwrite, to write long, to repeat myself, to go off on tangents, to say what I just said, only in a different way, to write long sentences, to occasionally write about seemingly unrelated phenomena, perhaps things that I have seen in the process of doing a little research. You see what I mean? So my friend and mentor, David Talbot, bless his soul, never gave me much trouble about it. Perhaps seeing how fragile I am, how resistant to criticism, how easily wounded, but the one passing remark he did make about my column um, maybe midway, three-quarters of the way through my tenure. And this was while giving me this unheard-of freedom on the Internet to write as I please. And one time he just uh, gently said, mm, it could be a little shorter. <laughs> it could be shorter. Yes, indeed, but do I have to? He never said I had to. Other folks went nuts about it, editors, colleagues, those who had to endure the malicious but funny attacks, voices like Gawker. And so anyway, here I am again. I'm doing the column this week. I'm not getting paid. I have no fear of being fired. And editing my work is really a chore, not a delight. It's very hard. Writing it is a delight. Speaking to you now is a delight. Shortening it is a bore. Bringing it down to that ideal American journalistic bang, bang, bang. It's a task, it's a chore, and it's a bore, and frankly, I'm not sure that it really, really improves it, especially having spent some time in Italy where journalists are a little freer with their prose and the sentences are a little longer and more recursive. So, enjoy the energy. I'm going along again. Um, listen, speaking of David Talbot, he's, he's doing great work in his new realm, www.thedavidtalbotshow.com. And I'm going to have a piece appearing on his site soon, so I'll let you know about that probably next week. So here's the letter. Dear Carrie, I've loved the same boy since I was a teenager, knowing that for lots of reasons we would never end up together. Our love has endured, and we've had decades of meaningful time together for its own sake, without the pressure of everyday partnership. The pandemic has brought us far closer to one another, but in doing so has led me to a painful realization. I never let go of my teenage hopes for him. He's taken an unconventional path in life, 
while mine has been very conventional and successful, both according to outside measures and my own. As teenagers, we had an intense, passionate connection that was partly fueled by this dynamic. Me as the ambitious, social, rising star, and him as the alternative lifestyle skeptic who liked my shine. He liked my take-charge attitude, and I liked bossing him around and telling him I knew better. That spark between us never died. But unfortunately, neither did that fun but unbalanced dynamic. He's grown up, gotten involved with a community that strikes many outsiders, including me, as cultish. And he's chosen a non-traditional career. And in my mind, I've kept him stuck as that teenager with so much potential, that creativity, that contrarian streak, all inevitably leading him towards self-discovery and being a unique, free-thinking leader. He probably thinks he's achieved that. But those of us who knew him back then see how narrowed his life has become, by his chosen group's dogma and his limited social exposure. Last fall, he went through a life-changing experience when that old version of him came suddenly roaring back and I felt joyfully vindicated. It's finally happening. He's awakened. There was so much self-reflection and epiphanies about the complicated messiness that is life. But that moment has passed, and he's doubled down on his adult choices, and I'm left here with our even deeper shared love, but the painful realization that my fantasy-fueled perception of him has to go. It has to go before I just feel bitter and mean towards the person he is now. I'm used to finding common ground and pride myself on having friendships that have bridged even these tumultuous political times. But this feels so much deeper about one's day-to-day -day values, interests, and energy. Do I have an ego problem for still wanting his life to look more like mine and thinking that he's a little brainwashed? Or am I trying to love someone who simply no longer exists? He's always going to be a part of my life and doesn't ever have to be my partner. Yet I feel so vexed by feelings of judgment, anger, and confusion towards someone who shows me such full love. How can I appreciate and reciprocate this wonderful love without letting my critical eye poison it. Signed, gratefully, Stuck in the Past. Dear Stuck, it is fascinating for me to hear this from you, the observer, as I share so many traits with this man. The preference for the non-traditional, the attraction to cultish groups, the failure to adequately plan. It is fascinating to hear your diagnosis of how those forces 
you noticed early on have been warped in confrontation with the temptations and challenges of the larger world. I am so fascinated by this. I ask myself, what other lens is there through which to see him? Is there a lens that would show the hidden energies which, if seen, would allow you some peace by showing the hitherto hidden energies at work and showing their fruit too, the satisfaction he derives, and not only satisfaction but sustenance, necessity. I wonder if it would help to see that what appears like failure is actually food for the soul, that his apparent recklessness produces something needful, some sustenance that we cannot see. What would it be? The keeping of a promise never to abandon his ideals? Maybe what looked like idealism at 18 looks like foolishness at 40. But consider also the sense of loss if he should give up whatever idealism, if he should break whatever promise he made. Maybe he doesn't even realize he made a promise to himself long ago. Maybe he doesn't realize it's no longer useful, that it has become a hindrance, like an old fence. Damn. By the fifth paragraph, I get the hard questions from you. Well, some are hard and some are easy. For instance, wanting his life to look more like yours, what's wrong with that? It seems understandable. I sympathize with that. We want what we want. What you do with it is another thing. For instance, if you didn't know that you can't make that happen, then you'd have a problem. Or take it a step further. If you consciously, rationally know that you can't make it happen, but it still troubles you, well, that's understandable too. Lots of people, me included, of course, have this. And yes, I do think of it as an ego problem, but what are you going to do? Get rid of the ego? People say the heart wants what it wants. Well, the ego wants what it wants too. So, for that matter, does the devil. The devil within us wants what the devil within us wants. But that's for another time. Thinking that he's a little brainwashed? That sounds like an accurate observation, nothing more. Again, what do you do with it? It's judgmental if you say brainwashed, but if it's a quality you don't like, well, okay, brainwashed is the term you use to describe adherence to a doctrine or uncritical acceptance of a leader's unprovable assertions and slogans. It's the term you use to describe something you frankly don't like. It's your ego and that's okay. Your ego is not going anywhere. It's here to stay. So my question would be, what are you doing with these feelings? Okay, you're writing to me about them. Elegantly, I should say. But what else? Can you simply accept the whole damn situation? Can you just accept that this is how it is and this is how you feel and who can know the future? Can you do that? 
try, I'd suggest, with all respect and love, I'd suggest try. Because I'd say your perceptions are probably all really accurate. Accurate to the point of cutting, actually. Painfully accurate. So can you just accept the fact that you are really seeing the situation as it is, in its painful truth, and accept the fact that seeing it accurately is painful? Because why? Because it means an imagined future will never be. If you imagined a future that will never be, and if you've allowed yourself to imagine that future and luxuriate in it, that luxury is in conflict with what you know to be true, and that's a problem. You may have to get rid of that beautiful future, and maybe that's really hard to do. I mean, letting go of an imagined future is hard to do if you don't realize that that's what you've done, that you've imagined this future and now you've been living in it for a while, enjoying it. You know, it's you've imp allowed yourself to purchase this plot of land in the future and you've already designed and built on it. You've furnished it. It's lovely. And you have to let it go. That's painful. But you have to realize it never existed in the first place. That's hard to do once you've already imagined it and built it and furnished it and everything. But you have to remind yourself. You probably know consciously it's never been real, but it, you just have to remind yourself of it consciously and let it go. Oh, boy. All that on two sentences. And hang on, that's my alarm clock, and I just have to, I'm just going to keep going for a few more minutes because uh, lunch, it's lunchtime. Um, okay, okay, I think I've answered your next question too. Your question, quote, or am I trying to love someone who simply no longer exists? Well, yeah, in a way, what you're doing, it seems to me, is remembering, living in the past, this guy you're trying to love is not before you in the moment. So why not try to love the guy who is before you in the moment? This flawed, exasperating character whose failure to live up to your expectations, it's not his problem but yours. Yeah. You clearly know what you're doing and would like somebody to say, yeah, that's right. That's exactly what you're doing. I'd say you're already doing it. But how can you do it better? Restraint of tongue. Your critical eye is there. You see it for what it is. I'd say, how do you avoid letting your knowledge poison it? Through kindness and restraint of tongue. You don't have to tell him every flaw you see in his choices. You don't have to tell him that what he says sounds hollow. You don't have to tell him he seems brainwashed. You don't have to hash all this out like you might have in high school. Ah, high school. Jesus, high school. 
Do I miss high school? It was both easier and harder than wizened adulthood. You could believe crazy stuff, no problem. Everybody did. Oh, the hell of maturity. All that letting go of crazy notions. Stuff that would never happen, no way. But we didn't know that then. We know it now. I feel like growing up and seeing people as they are, I see them as more frail, more needful of reassuring untruths, more needful of direction and authority. So I'm, I suppose, more patient with untruths, seeing how essential they are sometimes to just getting through the day. And I suppose I understand the clamor for authority, too, because I can see how difficult it is to be uh, responsible for oneself, to be autonomous, to be free. To be free is such a burden. I understand that. I don't think everyone is equally capable of, or even desirous of, freedom and autonomy. It's a terrible uh, thing. It's frightening, but there it is. We're just not all we're cracked up to be is the truth of it. So try lowering your expectations or just replacing your expectations with something like acceptance. Wherever he fails to meet your expectations, try just accepting it. You are perceptive enough to see it. So try just trusting your own perception. What you see is real. Though it may trouble you, try just accepting it. 